As you well know, Toe dips its toes, so to speak, into philosophy, both publicly as well as I do so in my personal life. I encourage you to do the same with Meditations by Marcus Aurelius. Nearly 2,000 years after it was written, this guide to personal growth remains eminently relevant for anyone seeking to lead a meaningful life. Meditations isn't your average self-help book. In fact, it was the emperor's personal journal, and this makes it useful not only as a form of propositional knowledge, but to aid perspectival knowledge, something that John Verveke talks about as exigent, though missing in our culture. We sit in this improbable, even preposterous position of having the opportunity to peer into one of the deepest soul-searching, thoughtful, private questions, internal struggles that the once leader of the world thought about in his moments alone. Like, man, I would love to interview him if Marcus were a guest on tow. Maybe he would be a fan of the CTMU. Maybe he would be a Castrop sympathizer. I'll leave that up to you. Dive into the philosophies of Marcus Aurelius today with the book that Ryan Holiday said is the greatest book ever written. Meditations is available from Penguin Random House at prh.com slash meditations. Tim, the whole paper is about free variables, and a free variable is something that you can change in your theory. That's the whole basis of the paper. Free. What does free mean? If it doesn't mean you can't change it, then it has no meaning. Welcome to Theories of Everything. My name is Kurt J. Mungle, and on the Toe Podcast, we explore theoretical physics, philosophy, and mathematics. In this episode, we have a theolocution with Tim Maudlin and Tim Palmer, exploring Bell's theorem, and more importantly, the assumptions that go into that theorem. At times, it felt like the New Testament, like, well, what does Bell say? Chapter 2, verse 4. So interpretations are abound, and there's definitely room for a part two, especially with a blackboard, perhaps even filmed in person. So if you have questions or comments, please leave it below. Tim Palmer is a Royal Society Research Professor in the Department of Physics at Oxford. His PhD was in general relativity, and he retains a strong interest in fundamental physics. He's also an expert on climate physics and chaos theory, writing a popular book called The Primacy of Doubt, exploring the science of uncertainty in areas as diverse as the climate, economic forecasting, and quantum physics. He's a fellow at the Royal Society and an international member of the U.S. National Academy of Sciences. Tim Maudlin is a professor of philosophy at New York University, specializing in the philosophy of physics. He's penned several influential books, including Quantum Nonlocality and Relativity, as well as The Metaphysics Within Physics, simplifying abstruse concepts for a broad audience. He's also the founder of the John Bell Institute, of which there's a GoFundMe in the description. As usual, every link, everything that's mentioned is in the description. Tim Maudlin has been on before. The Theories of Everything podcast is, in fact, one of our most popular episode where we discuss Bell's theorem, the philosophy of physics, and what constitutes a quantum observer. All right, before we get started, there's a few pieces of terminology that may not be familiar to everyone, and they're not expanded on in the podcast itself, primarily so we can just get to the meat of the discussion. But here's a recap in case you're interested, and if you know these terms, then feel free to skip forward to the timestamp that's outlined either in the description or over here. So the terms are superdeterminism, a mixed master universe, fractal cosmology, and an attractor. Superdeterminism is a class of quantum theories. It's not a single interpretation of quantum mechanics. In fact, it's not an interpretation at all. It's a class of quantum theories put forward by Gerard Tuft that don't have what's called statistical independence. So what is statistical independence? Well, it's one of the assumptions that go into Bell's theorem. At least that's 
what is debated on today. So much of the episode is on what is the definition of statistical independence. The second terminology is mixed master universe. What is that? Well, it's a solution to general relativity where the universe undergoes chaotic and turbulent transformations. It was originally put forward to solve a problem that inflation ended up also solving and people seem to prefer inflation so you don't hear about the mixed master universe. Then there's fractal cosmology, which says that the large scale cosmological structures are fractal-like in their distribution. Now, fractals don't always mean self-similar, though they do have infinite detail. What it technically means is that there's one definition of dimension that we are commonly told, and then there's another definition of dimension, and when these don't coincide, then you have a fractal. So ordinarily, you've heard of Rn, so the real numbers to the n. For instance, we have three space, so R to the three, or R4 if we include time. That's called the topological dimension. There's another definition of dimension called Hausdorff, and ordinarily these coincide for the objects that we think about, but sometimes they don't. And when they don't, specifically when one exceeds the other, that's called a fractal. Now, attractors are used in chaos theory, and those describe the long-term, long-term in terms of time, dynamics of the system. So that is, if you were to leave a system for a while, where does it tend to? Are there certain states or even trajectories that it moves toward? Now, there's a precise definition of what it means for there to be a long time, quote unquote, because that's vague. Also, it's vague to say tend to. So there's a mathematical definition of that as well. Okay, so an example would be if there's a ball and it rolls down the hill, like a U-shaped hill, it will settle at the bottom. That bottom place would be called an attractor. And I don't like these ball and hill analogies because they're used overused in my estimation for physics, like the Mexican hat you show, oh, there's a ball and it rolls down the hill. Or harmonic oscillator can be like a ball that just continually swings on the hill. Anyhow, attractor is used not in those scenarios, although that's technically an attractor. It's just generally used in chaos theory. Chaos theory is whenever you have a system where if you were to tweak it a tiny amount, then later the future evolution deviates a large amount. So usually we have an input that if we were to tweak slightly in the input, the output is tweaked slightly. When that fails to be the case, it's chaotic. Okay, with those definitions out of the way, enjoy this theolocution with Tim Palmer and Tim Maudlin. Okay, professors, thank you. Welcome. It's an honor to speak with you for the first time, Tim Palmer and Tim Maudlin. Welcome back. For the viewers, both of you are named Tim, so I'm going to be referring to you all as Professor Maudlin and Professor Palmer when appropriate. Why don't we get started? with Professor Palmer. What have you been working on in the past few months and what excites you about it? Okay, um, uh, uh, it's a kind of difficult question because I, I split my time uh, between two quite different areas. So um, on the one hand, uh, I do a lot of work in climate physics. And uh, right now, actually, uh, I'm preparing I'm flying off to Berlin on Sunday for what I hope will be a really landmark meeting in climate physics. Um, we're pushing for what I've been calling a CERN for climate change. So a kind of an international um, center that can do the type of modeling that we need to understand climate change at a much more detailed level than we can currently do, than we can currently uh, have have knowledge about by 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 working internationally and creating international institutes. So the last you know month or so, I've been preparing a, a kind of keynote talk on this, uh, putting together some of the sort of scientific um, 
reasons why we need to work on climate change internationally. So I know that's not the topic for today. So I just want to, but I want to just tell you about that because, in a sense, I mean, what we will be talking about today is perhaps bringing ideas from fields like nonlinear dynamics, which plays a big role in climate change, into into quantum physics. So the other kind of half of my time is indeed on kind of fundamental physics. My my PhD many years ago now was in general relativity theory uh, under uh, Dennis Sharma at Oxford, cosmologist, famous cosmologist. And the whole issue of, you know, how do we synthesize quantum and gravitational physics has, has always been a, a sort of deep passion of mine and something I I try to, um, you know, focus on when I, in between the climate work. Um, I gave a talk uh, a couple of weeks ago uh, to the theoretical physics department on something I, I'm now calling rational quantum mechanics. And <clears throat> the, the word rational is deliberately sort of ambiguous because it's an attempt to make some of the things like, like Bell's theorem, uh, which are traditionally viewed as, as kind of weird and incomprehensible, more comprehensible, but but deliberately also using the other word rational, which is that um, of in mathematics, rational numbers are numbers which you know can be written as fractions like five over a hundred or whatever, seven over five thousand. Um, the thing which people perhaps don't know about quantum mechanics unless you work in that area is that the continuum actually plays a vital role in the theory of quantum mechanics through what are called Hilbert spaces. So a Hilbert space is a vector space over a field of complex numbers, and complex numbers are continuum, is a continuum field. So despite the fact that we think of quantum as a sort of discrete jump, continuum uh, mathematics plays a key role in, in quantum mechanics. And my personal belief is that that is one of its problem areas. It's its strength in some respects, but it's also its problem. It's a problem uh, in it creates it creates many of the interpretational problems that we have. So I've been developing a, a, a mathematical model where we sort of relax that constraint and can consider Hilbert space as a as a more discretized space. And you know the idea is to see what that brings to the table. And I, I would argue it brings some some pretty big, um, from a least conceptual point of view, pretty big consequences. So those are two different things. I think like a quite quite. Uh, Kind of polar opposites in many respects, but um, that, that's what makes science fun doing different stuff. Great. Now, Professor Maudlin, what have you been working on in the past few months, maybe even a year, and why does it ignite you? Well, it, this is going to be kind of ironic, the pair of things I'll mention. Uh, maybe I'll do them in opposite order. That is first the theoretical thing, but you know this is not measured in a scale of months or even years. This is something I've been working on for several years, uh, maybe a decade, uh, which also has to do actually with getting rid of continua, which is to to develop uh, theories of discrete space times and to see how that changes the mathematical situation and whether you can get relativistic looking structures to emerge in a natural way from discrete underlying structures and so on. And that's kind of, I mean, I've had some very interesting results. I sort of got in two plus one dimensions, I got Minkowski space time to sort of drop out uh, without expecting it all of a sudden from a very, very, very different foundational picture. Uh, but that's been going on for years and years and years. 
Um, what I've actually been spending my real time on recently is also institutional. That is, I'm sitting here right now in Croatia at the at the uh, hopefully future home of the John Bell Institute. Um, and what we're trying to do is set up a, a physical location to have workshops and summer schools on foundations of physics. And uh, we're now at the point where we either fish or cut bait in terms of acquiring this location. We've built a lecture hall. We've built a lot of the infrastructure. We've been running. There was a workshop on positronium uh, about a week and a half ago. But uh, we have to figure out if we can actually get the financing. So anybody out there listening who wants to help us, you can. there's a GoFundMe uh, or you can go to our website, which is www.johnbellinstitute.org. And there's a, a link there to the GoFundMe. Um, and any any support would be of great help to us in the immediate future. So those two things and and teaching have pretty much taken up all my time. The link to the John Bell Institute will be written on screen right now. And I urge you, if you're watching, well, you'll be seeing it right now on screen as well. Click on the link, browse it, donate what you can if you believe in the cause. It's a great cause. Okay, so Professor Maudlin, what do you see as the main disagreements? I know there was a bit of a short stories between you two over the email exchanges, quite lengthy mm -hmm. emails. If you could summarize for the audience what you believe the main disagreement is between you both, and then Professor Palmer, I'd like to hear you comment. Sure. I, I mean, I think it's actually pretty straightforward. Um, Bell proved a theorem. It actually is a theorem. It's a mathematical theorem. And it runs off of some assumptions, as any theorem would, and draws some logical consequences from those assumptions. And the net output is a certain inequality where it says, if your theory obeys these conditions, which I'll get to into in a second, then if you go into a lab and do experiments at far away from each other, um, ideally at space-like separation relativistically, although that's kind of gilding the lily if you just put the labs far enough apart, um, there's an inequality, Bell's inequality, which if these assumptions hold, cannot be violated, or in any way cannot be regularly or reliably or predictably violated. I mean, it could be violated by chance, but it's not the kind of thing any theory could predict a violation of. And so for over 50 years now, um, two things have been happening. One is experimentally, the thing has been tested because quantum mechanics predicts violations and those violations have been found and they've been found just as quantum mechanics predicts and various experimental loopholes have been tightened up. And uh, at this point, I don't think there's any actual dispute that in fact, the inequality is violated by nature, by reality. And if that's true, then one of, one of the assumptions that goes into the derivation, of course, has to be false. Now, there are really only two mathematical, uh, there's a lot of confusion about this. People say stuff like, oh, Bell assumes realism, which quite honestly, you don't even know what to make of it. I mean, it's a mathematical theorem. So anything he assumes, there has to be a clear mathematical statement of what it is. And there is no clear mathematical statement of realism or, you know, what the external world exists or something like that. I, I don't, you know, it's hard to know even what to say about that. 
There are two mathematical assumptions that go into the theorem. One is called Bell locality, and one is called statistical independence. And it, it, the dispute is very simple. Um, Bell felt, and I feel, and the people I hang around with feel, that uh, it's not on the cards for any physical theory that we could possibly have reason to believe to violate statistical independence, and therefore you just have to give up on, on the locality condition. And we have theories that do that. We have several different theories of very different formulations that do that, that predict these violations. So you see how they predict the violations because they give up on locality. Um, there have been people from the beginning who just really don't want to give up on locality. They just don't, you know, they're very averse to it. And you're kind of painted into a corner at that point because <laughs> the only other thing you could do is say, well, I'm going to give up on statistical independence. And there have been various attempts, at least, I mean, you see the logical situation and then the, the issue comes down to, okay, can you really in any plausible way uh, produce an acceptable physical theory that violates the statistical independence condition? Um, and I still don't think you can. I think, yeah, of course, logically it's possible, but I, I just don't see how it can be done in a way that's methodologically acceptable. And the other Tim, thinks the opposite, right? Wants to keep locality, as far as I can tell. This is what Gerard Tuft wants to do in his theory. He wants to keep locality in his automaton, cellular automaton theory, and give up statistical independence. Various people have tried to do that. Um, so that's that's simply what the dispute is, as far as I can tell. Professor Palmer, does that sound about correct? That sounds uh, totally correct. Uh, so I, I completely, 100% agree with Tim uh, on on you know his summary, um, maybe actually I could start by by actually commenting on a couple of points where I think Tim and I actually agree because uh, sure. I, I I don't want this to be entirely a kind of um, a big fight or something. And um, the first point is is actually to kind of endorse the uh, the John Bell Institute concept because. I personally think, you know, Bell's theorem and what it's telling us about physics is super important, uh, and and it, and Bell's theorem deserves, you know, considerable and, and the work of Bell, John Bell in general, deserves the sort of attention, you know, that a separate institute in in uh, Croatia, whatever it is, uh, would give. So, you know, I think that's like. Really good. I'm 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 super happy to see you know that that institute, and I I just feel you know this is a really important question. Personally, I think it's an important question. Not perhaps not everyone agrees with this, but I I personally think resolving this question is is going to be crucial for developing our theories of quantum gravity or theories that synthesize quantum physics and gravitational physics, because you know. It is a fact of the matter that that local causality, you know, underpins the theory of relativity, both special and general relativity. The the light cone structure of space time is is just kind of fundamental to general relativity, and um, the fact that it and of course general relativity is is deterministic. It's uh, it's geometric. It's nonlinear. It's kind of most of the things that quantum mechanics isn't. 
um, you know, the Schrodinger equation is linear. It's kind of, you know, you, you're sort of struggling a bit to put a, a strong geometric interpretation on quantum mechanics. Um, and it's, you know, it's nominally indeterministic. The collapse is sort of seen as an indeterministic problem. And, of course, Bell's theorem raises this issue of the, of, of the causal structure of quantum mechanics. So I personally think that that kind of understanding Bell's theorem will be a crucial step to satisfactorily quantizing gravity, which we haven't really done. So at least there's no consensus in the community. As a brief aside, you both seem yeah. to be nodding at that. So you both are in agreement. Is this a consensus yeah. in the foundations of physics? I don't know. No, I kind of sense that it isn't. Uh, people just kind of gloss over a little bit, I think. Uh, Bell's theorem. They, they. It's an, it's an. You know, because if, you know, if you take um, the standard approaches to quantum gravity, which is string theory and loop quantum gravity, um, people just shrug their shoulders and say, "Well, Bell's inequality is violated," and just kind of that's it. But there's no real, no real focus going into uh, what that's telling us about physics. The other thing I would say is I totally agree with Tim to to kind of focus on these two issues of locality and so-called statistical independence. I, 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 if we get time, I, it's not a phrase I'm actually super keen about uh, because I don't think it necessarily says anything about statistics, but that's something we can come to. But in particular, um, I agree, for example, that issues about, well, realism, as Tim said, and, and the other one that's often raised is free will or free choice or something like that, is a kind of a bit of a red herring. And actually, this kind of brings me to, well, it kind of brings me to the point where I disagree with Tim, because um, I kind of, I got interested in, in Bell's inequality, Bell's theorem, back in the 1980s. I, I did my PhD in general relativity in, in, the, in the late 70s. And kind of left the field, and um, it was actually a chance reading of a a big volume that Stephen Hawking had edited on the I think it was the four hundredth anniversary of Newton's Mathematica Principia Principia Mathematica, um, which had an article on 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 Bell's inequality. And I I kind of made a mental note to myself: I've got to get, I've got to really understand this. I've been kind of putting it off for most of my life. I've got to understand this. So that led me. Actually, that led me to read the paper that Tim said nails uh, the argument against what's called superdeterminism, which is the violation of uh, Bell's. Uh, sorry, the violation of statistical independence. Um, so that that you know that was actually one of the very first papers. You know, I've still got my my volume of Bell's book, which I bought in. Uh, I've got the newer volume. I have the old one too, but it's okay. Too deep. <laughs> yeah, um, but I bought that. Uh, I, I probably in the early nineties or so. But anyway, um, and that was pretty much one of the first papers I I read. And um, the 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 free variables and local causality. And what I'd like to do, um, you know, I'd, what I'd really like to do in this uh, session we have, Kurt, is kind of talk about that paper in particular because i think you know that that is as close as we're going to get to what bell thought about essentially this issue of 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 um if you like the statistical independence uh, assumption which is you know which by the very title of his paper is to do with 
what freedom do we have in the laws of physics to change parameters and change variables you know from one value to another i mean that's kind of the that's the underlying theme of the paper we'll go into that and so i think and the reason you know the reason i perhaps emailed you originally kurt was that i i i i, uh, I watched and, and listened to the original debate with tim and i felt that and i mean i totally agree with tim that his example of a kind of conspiracy uh in in the lab where you know rats are, are tested for uh, whether they catch cancer or not in a smoky environment i mean and he, and he introduced the concept you could you could sort of uh, you know you could um if you wanted to you could distort the statistics coming out of that experiment in such a way as to kind of invalidate the the seemingly obvious result that smoking did increase your likelihood of cancer now i agree with tim that that would indeed apply imply a violation of statistical independence in the kind of quantum mechanical context but where i disagree is that violations of statistical independence necessarily imply that type of conspiracy and my view is that and i i'd, I'd be you know we can talk i'm i well, fact i want to talk about it that there is a i think a mathematically rigorous uh, robust uh process that would violate such statistical independence that does not have any connection whatsoever to do with this type of conspiracy so my my claim is that violating statistical independence does not necessarily imply this kind of gross conspiracy and i actually think reading i mean this is now reading between the lines to some extent and and tim may disagree and in a sense i can't totally defend my position here but i kind of sense reading john bell's words he was actually slightly equivocal about his position he in the paper he he kind of outlines what he calls a reasonable or a, a likely type of uh, situation that uh, that's likely to be the case in physics but at the end he kind of says well i'm not not actually sure and i might be wrong about this um so far from sort of nailing it as i think tim said in the original interview i kind of feel this actually shows john bell sort of questioning a little bit uh, what could be a viable process that would actually lead to a violation of statistical independence without implying the type of kind of grotesque conspiracy that Tim correctly raised with his example. So I can talk a bit more about that of course but perhaps I should shut up for a second and we'll come okay. back. Okay, to summarize the disagreement is to whether or not superdeterminism is conspiratorial and then number 2 what did John Bell mean in his paper? That's right. I have a question about these questions. Why do we care what John meant? It's like exegesis. Oh, what did Wittgenstein mean in the Tractatus? Like, who cares? Let's just talk about the first point, whether superdeterminism is conspiratorial. So, Professor Maudlin, why do we care about what Bell meant or didn't mean? Well, I, I mean, the main reason to pay very close attention to whatever Bell wrote was that he was a really clear thinker and a really clear writer and had extremely good judgment. And so that's the reason to pay attention to anybody. It doesn't mean that he was a you know, a God and he didn't, you know, even Homer nods and he can make mistakes. Um, 
I might say that that Bell's slight equivocation is just a bit of politeness. Um, you know, and, and as you say, I'm not really sure we're going to get very far of trying to get too deep into his head. Um, the real question before us is just the exact significance of this mathematical assumption that goes into the theorem. Um, and, and maybe I can kick it off a little bit by saying, um, I don't think because this comes up a lot, this idea of evaluating counterfactual assertions, what would have happened had something been different, right? What would have happened had Bob set his detector this way rather than that way? Um, is there a fact about that? Which, of course, in order for there to be a fact like that, you kind of have to believe you're dealing in a deterministic situation. If you have an indeterministic physics, a fundamentally indeterministic physics, then right off the bat, you're going to say, well, there's no fact about what would have happened had, had things been different. In fact, there's no fact about what would have happened if things had been exactly the same up to a certain point, right? That's what indeterminism is. It says the physics allows you to be the, exactly the same up to a certain time and then diverge. Um, so there's been a whole lot of literature for decades of people claiming that Bell's theorem tacitly presupposes something called counterfactual definiteness. Um, Bell clearly denies that, and he's right. I don't think it does. And I, and I don't think that these mathematical conditions really have anything at all to do with counterfactuals. Um, I think they're purely statistical statements about frequencies and and that, you know, discussing counterfactuals is just off topic. Um, so if, if that's true, you know, I mean, it may very well be if we both agree about that. I'm not sure. What, uh, and then I'm not even sure exactly what we're debating about. My feeling from the interchange is is that. Tim Palmer thinks that that things about counterfactuals and what would have happened and and so on are very important to this discussion. I don't think they are. Um, and I'll just kick this off by saying the actual mathematical condition has a a, a a row in it, right? It has the symbol row that is supposed to be in the mathematical sense of probability measure. but the question is, I mean, you can use probability measures for lots of things, um, for, for lots of different purposes. And here, I think that that row is merely a statistical measure. It's a measure of frequencies. And that the statistical independence condition is just a claim about frequencies and nothing else. And, and a claim about frequencies, actual frequencies, not counterfactual anything, just actual frequencies. Um, if that's true, then all the talk about counterfactuals just doesn't even shouldn't even come into the discussion, as far as I can tell. Um, so, I, I mean, I could I could go into more detail of how I understand that condition, and and I guess Tim can go into more detail about he un, how he understands the condition. But I think that would be kind of the crux of it. All right. Would it be okay if I was to summarize, and then you tell me if my summarization is approximately correct and fill in any gaps. Mm -hmm. So a counterfactual is this large word, which is scary, but it means contrary to fact conditional, which is another large word, but is simple. It means that there's an if-then statement. And if your if is contrary to reality, then, well, what would it have been like? So 
Is that correct? Yeah. Okay. Now, can you give an example in terms of something simple like a pair of glasses or a cup? So I say, uh, you know, here I am holding on to this, to this scissors. I didn't let go of it. But we all believe it is true that had I let go of it a second ago, it would have fallen. Right? That's what would have happened. It didn't happen, but it would have. You might say, why do you believe that? And I'll do, well, whenever I do, you know, whenever I do drop it, it does fall. And that gives me some warrant for believing if I had let go of it, it would fall. Anyway, th th there's a huge philosophical, logical literature on counterfactual conditionals. And it's very complicated, but I don't think it's relevant. So I would, you know, I would prefer not to have to get into the fine details of modal logic, which is really what you're doing there, because I don't think the condition has to do with counterfactual conditionals. Okay. And so, Professor Palmer, what is counterfactual definiteness? And then can you please go into what you agree with what Tim Marlin said or what you disagree with? Well... I fundamentally disagree, but, you know, we have to be careful about words and maybe, you know, we might mean different things by the same word, so such as counterfactual. I mean, Bell's, I, I mean, look, I, I do want to, I mean, I agree with you, we don't, we don't need necessarily to talk about Bell and what he wrote, but it, it's, it's, I think it's a useful, it's useful to refer to this paper, free, free variable free variables and local causality. And what did Bell, what Bell is saying in that paper, and of course it's the title of the paper, is that how you interpret his theorem, how you interpret the experimental violation of uh, his inequalities, um, depends on what are the free variables in, in the, in, a putative theory that you have to explain the violation of Bell inequalities. So I, I just want to I just want to pick up Tim on the example that you had, where you dropped or you didn't drop. Let's say that in reality you didn't drop the scissors, mm -hmm. and you know you said, well, okay, I I can infer that had I uh, opened my fingers, the scissors would have dropped because. You know, if I do that experiment in in uh, you know in ten seconds' time or tomorrow or the next week, it will drop. But of course, that you're doing the experiment at a different time, and as and as Bell said, actually in the paper, you know, the the moons of Jupiter will have changed, the position of the clocks of the hand will have changed, and you're not actually you're not actually doing the experiment where the only thing that happened was you changed, you opened your fingers. Now, yeah. the point is, the point is, however, that we have, you know, Newton's laws of motion that, and, you know, Newton's theory of gravity, and we can appeal to the theory and say, if I had changed the initial conditions of that pair of scissors uh, in such a way that it was now you know, no longer constrained by uh, the frictional force of my fingers, I can solve the equations, and indeed the scissors would drop to the to the desktop. So you can, and and in that in that uh, theoretical calculation, you can assume that the moons of Jupiter are the same as they were in the real world, where the scissors didn't drop. Um, so you can just change in your theory that one 
variable, if you like, which is your whether the, your fingers are gripping the scissors or not. And your theory will tell you that the scissors will drop if your fingers aren't gripping them. So, so that is a counterfactual. The, the fact that at that time, when the moons of Jupiter were such as they are, um, in reality, the scissors didn't drop. The appeal to the theory to predict that the scissors would have dropped had the fingers been different um, is is a counterfactual, and it's 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 uh, supported by the theory of you know Newtonian physics in this case um, that says yeah the the laws of physics do not prevent or do not uh, deny or do not uh, contradict um, a counterfactual world where your fingers release the, the scissors and the scissors dropped. And really that's it's the okay. point that Bell is making. You know, this is the this is the crucial question. What things can we assume can be changed, keeping, you know, everything else in the world fixed, and what things can't we? And that that's where we come to his famous, and I'd like to discuss it, uh, example where we set a quantum measuring system with a pseudo-random number generator. I think this is a really important example. Okay, uh, it's, a, it's a nice example, and we should come to that. But let me, uh, again, just... Uh... I, I mean, I'm gonna I'm gonna allow myself to drift into this for a minute, but I do want to go back and say, and insist. In my view, counterfactual conditions have nothing to do with anything here. So, insofar, I mean, I, I, as a philosopher who's worked on this stuff, I can't avoid wanting to comment. But I'm a little scared of getting drawn into a a, a dispute that I I think is just a red herring. But let me give that. Please. So look. The, the only theories that would support counterfactuals are deterministic theories, because you need a deterministic. If you want to say, gee, things actually went this way, what if they had been different? If your theory is fundamentally indeterministic and says, well, if they'd been different, there are various ways it could have gone. Uh, like in a collapse theory, in a fundamentally indeterministic collapse theory or something like that, then there's just no fact about what would have happened had things been different. The theory doesn't doesn't pick out a particular physical history that would have occurred under different conditions. Now, what Bell actually says a, a, a little bit um, in another paper, uh, it, it, and he's clearly frustrated, is he says, oh, people think my theorem presupposes determinism. And he says it doesn't. He says to the limited amount that determinism appears in his original argument, it's a theorem and not a supposition, right? It follows from from certain perfect correlations and and the other assumptions. Um, and I would say the same thing. Look, it, it, you know, if you have an indeterministic theory, just counterfactual definite is not on, but 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 determinism is not required for the theorem. And, and the CHSH form of the inequality makes that absolutely clear. So um, the other thing to say is is look, in, in the case of and this I think will be helpful for understanding. In the case of the, of the scissors, I said, I believe, and we all believe, in fact, had I just let them go, they would have fallen. Why do we believe that? Well, I said, because whenever I let them go, they do fall. And furthermore, I can let them go, as it were, whenever I want, right? I, I can let them, you know, I can, the, 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 there's no particular pattern to them being let go. 
So if, if someone were to say, no, 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 it, it, it really depends on the moons of Jupiter being in such and such a position that the scissors fall. I'm going to say, so wait, you're telling me whenever I happen to let go of my fingers, the moons of Jupiter just happen to be in exactly the right position so that they don't prevent. Oh, okay. Just a moment. So Tim, Maudlin, if you can hear us, I don't know if you can hear, but you've just frozen for the past 20 seconds or so. We're going to wait. Sorry, folks, that that new one didn't work either. So now I'm back. Okay, um, great. So I'll, I'll just pick that up. I know exactly what I was saying when I... <laughs> okay, yeah. Right, which is which is that, that, that quite apart from theory, right, you could have reasons. Everybody would take it to be reasonable to think that, yeah, the, the moons of Jupiter have nothing to do with this thing falling when I let go of it. Why? Because it falls whenever I let go of it. And, you know, <laughs> you know irrespective of anything about, and if you say, no, no, you know, when, when the moons of Jupiter are just in this form, um, which they never happen to be when you let go of it, gosh, then the thing would float in the midair. You you just wouldn't take that seriously for a second, right? I mean, you, you wouldn't take such a thing. You, you can't say I have empirical evidence against it in the sense that, because it's only making weird claims about counterfactual conditions, about what would have happened had things been different. Um, Tim, I, I just want to get away from that. I, I, I think that's not the assumption. The assumption, and I, I do want to insist, Bell uses a certain phrase in this paper. He says, um, at, or at least effectively free for the purpose at hand. Okay. And, and he insists that, that that's the careful formulation of the assumption of the theorem, which is that, say, Bob and Alice, who can set their devices in one of two ways each, that that setting is effectively free for the purpose at hand, which means something very different than that they have free will or this or that, or even, I don't think it has anything to do with counterfactuals. Uh, we can get into what I think it does mean. Uh, it, and I think when you see what it does mean, yeah, it's really, really, really hard to see how you do science without an assumption like that. Right. And hear that sound? That's the sweet sound of success with Shopify. Shopify is the all-encompassing commerce platform that's with you from the first flicker of an idea to the moment you realize you're running a global enterprise. Whether it's handcrafted jewelry or high-tech gadgets, Shopify supports you at every point of sale, both online and in person. They streamline the process with the internet's best converting checkout, making it 36% more effective than other leading platforms. There's also something called Shopify Magic, your AI-powered assistant that's like an all-star team member working tirelessly behind the scenes. What I find fascinating about Shopify is how it scales with your ambition. No matter how big you want to grow, Shopify gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. Join the ranks of businesses in 175 countries that have made Shopify the backbone of their commerce. Shopify, by the way, powers 10% of all e-commerce in the United States, including huge names like Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen. If you ever need help, their award-winning support is like having a mentor that's just a click away. Now, are you ready to start your own success story? Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash theories, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash theories now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in, shopify.com slash theories. 
Razor blades are like diving boards. The longer the board, the more the wobble, the more the wobble, the more nicks, cuts, scrapes. A bad shave isn't a blade problem, it's an extension problem. Henson is a family-owned aerospace parts manufacturer that's made parts for the International Space Station and the Mars rover. Now they're bringing that precision engineering to your shaving experience. By using aerospace-grade CNC machines, Henson makes razors that extend less than the thickness of a human hair. The razor also has built-in channels that evacuates hair and cream, which make clogging virtually impossible. Henson Shaving wants to produce the best razors, not the best razor business. So that means no plastics, no subscriptions, no proprietary blades, and no planned obsolescence. It's also extremely affordable. The Henson razor works with the standard dual edge blades that give you that old school shave with the benefits of this new school tech. It's time to say no to subscriptions and yes to a razor that'll last you a lifetime. Visit hensonshaving.com everything. If you use that code, you'll get two years worth of blades for free. Just make sure to add them to the cart. Plus 100 free blades when you head to H-E-N-S-O-N-S-H-A-V-I-N-G dot com slash everything and use the code everything. When he refers to things being free, he's referring to a property of the laws of physics. What he's saying in this paper is if we want to understand you know, my theorem, this experimental violation, we've got to get down and look carefully at putative theories that may explain the experiments. And the crucial the crucial issue will be what are what things can be varied and still satisfy the underlying laws of that theory. That is the crucial, that's the crux of the matter. You know, that's why he says, you know, uh, you know, we cannot repeat an experiment changing just one variable. The hands of uh, the, the, the hands of the clock will have moved and the moons of Jupiter. This is Bell talking. Physical mm-hmm. theories are more amenable in this respect. We can calculate the consequence of changing free elements in a theory, be they only initial conditions. And so can explore the causal structure of the theory. I insist that my theory is primarily an analysis of certain kinds of physical theory, i.e., what are the free variables in that theory? So when I talk about counterfactuals, I'm just referring to the question or counterfactual definiteness is the question, if I have a theory of physics, is it justified or is it permitted to change one variable in that theory uh, and and with that variation, uh, continue to evolve the, the universe as 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 a meaningful, physically meaningful construct. So that's that's really what counterfactual definiteness is. Can I give you, Tim? Can I guess give you the because I don't want to talk too much in in sort of vague and abstract terms. I, I want to give you the model that occurred to me when I uh, read. Bell's paper back in the whenever it was in the late eighties or early nineties, because I'd been working in chaos theory, uh, you know, for many years, and you know maybe the the viewers will be familiar with Loren, Ed Lorentz. Ed Lorentz was a meteorologist from MIT who put forward these amazing three differential equations, 
what's amazing about them is that they generate a kind of geometry in in this three-dimensional state space. So the three variables, so the state space is three-dimensional. You run the model just for a long time from any old initial condition, and you find um, the equations trace out this geometry. It took actually quite a few years after Bell, uh, Lorenz's paper for mathematicians to rigorously prove that this geometry was a, a fractal geometry in the three-dimensional Euclidean state space. So the, the dynamical model that occurred to me was, um, let's just imagine we have a dynamical, by the way, the whole thing is deterministic. There is no indeterminism anywhere in the equations. It's totally 100% deterministic. Um, let's imagine we have a dynamical system which is evolving on this, it's a, called an attractor, strange attractor or fractal attractor. Let's imagine it's evolving on this attractor. And we just freeze it. We just take a point on, on the attractor. And we're going to write out, and I, the reason for saying this we'll come to in a minute, we'll write out the values of the three variables at some instant in time where we've kind of frozen the evolution. We'll write the, the variables out to a million decimal places. Okay. And now let's ask the question, because this goes to this question of freedom. What is the freedom in this particular dynamical model? What I'm going to ask is, what would be the what would have happened to the future evolution of the state if I change the millionth digit of one of those three variables, keeping the other two variables fixed at what they were? So I'm just going to take the a point on the attractor and take one variable, change it by one part in a million. You can make it one part in a billion if you like, it doesn't really matter. Um, keep the other two variables fixed. The question is, what? how would uh, that state evolve into the future? The thing is that that seemingly tiny, tiny perturbation, keeping the other two variables fixed, is enough to take the state off its attractor into one of the gaps in the fractal geometry. There's those kind of gaps which go down, you know, to smaller and smaller scales. You can prove that that would take you off the attractor. So if your dynamical system is defined by the geometry of the attractor, then you've taken it to a point where it has it, 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 the dynamical system is undefined because the dynamical point the points on the attractor are only defined on the attractor. You've taken it off the attractor. So you've done something to tiny perturbation, which has taken you from a completely deterministic system to a totally just undefined. It's an undefined point. Okay. Now you could with your you could take that point, that perturbed point back onto the attractor by also perturbing the other two variables. So you could, you know, may, maybe add a little bit to X2 and a little bit to X3 and it would take the point back on the attractor. And then you could indeed say, okay, that point would evolve deterministically on the attractor. But the point is you've had to, you, you've had to add perturbations to the other two variables. You can't keep those two, vari 
the other two variables fixed. And that idea really um, resonated with me when I first thought about it, because I thought this is exactly a counter example to what Bell thought was a reasonable, you know, his reasonable assumption that we'll come on to this experiment in, in a minute, perhaps, about pseudo-random number generators. And he makes a key assumption, which is kind of reasonable, but this dynamical system uh, would actually provide a counterexample to that. So then I got thinking, what would you need to, to actually scale this up to the universe? And the answer is simple. You just treat the whole universe as a, as a dynamical system evolving on some uh, precisely on some, you know, chaotic attractor. And the interesting thing is there are cosmologies, uh, you know, the famous Mixmaster cosmology, which has, which have chaotic attractors. So this is not a completely daft idea. Um, but it provides a, it provides an example of, happy to, we're happy to talk about this in more detail, but it provides an example of how statistical independence can be violated without going anywhere near statistics. And I just, just before I'll finish in a, one second, I just, just slightly counter the point that Tim Maudlin said. The statistical independence assumption does indeed uh, mathematically refer to a probability um, function on hidden variables and so on. But that doesn't itself imply anything statistical, you know, so just to give you an example, if I said that two plus two equals four, that's not a statistical, uh, so nothing to do with statistics. If I said that two plus two equals five, I mean, that's an incorrect statement, but also nothing to do with statistics. But I can equally say two plus two equals four with probability one, and two plus two equals five with probability zero. So I can easily inject probability distributions or probabilities into what are basically deterministic uh, statements. And I think that is the sense in which um, the, this particular model would violate statistical independence because a point on the attractor um, can be treated as something that's occurring with probability one, and a point off the attractor is occurring with probability zero. Um, so the, the whole thing doesn't doesn't have to depend on or doesn't have to refer to anything statistical. So, so, so what, that's like, yeah, okay, please. Yeah. So again, I'm I'm just I, I need to start by signposting that I think everything I'm about to say is actually irrelevant to the discussion. But a lot of things were brought up, and there I have some things to say about them. I'll say them, but I, I hope to bring us back to what I think the the main point is. Look, the the, the theory of chaotic of chaotic systems. The, uh, are, is very interesting. The theory of systems that have a very, 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 very infinitely maybe uh, sensitivity to initial conditions is very interesting. Um, you don't need three dimensions. You can do this with a logistical map and essentially one dimension is a standard example that you use. And some of these systems have attractors. What does that mean? It means that if you start anywhere, um, the system will evolve toward the attractor. That's why it's called an attractor. Sometimes you get into a chaotic regime where there are no attractors. Okay, but there are regimes where there are attractors. Of course, you never get to the attractor. 
I mean, if you start off it, you never get there. It's just, it's just in the long term, you get ever closer to it. So I don't even understand what it means to say it's probability one, the system's on the attractor. Systems are, are not going to be on attractors. They're going to be getting closer to attractors. They're off attractors, right? I mean, the chance of it being on the attractor is in some sense zero. Um, but it's still an attractor because the the, the flow lines tend, tend toward this point. And this is easy to illustrate with these standard examples of the logistical map and so on. But again, th this stuff about counterfactuals, I mean, I really want to insist that the statistical independence condition is a condition essentially about statistics. So let me at least say what I say it is. And you'll see that there's nothing about counterfactuals or what would happen or anything in it. Alice and Bob are, are in two different labs far away from each other. I make a whole many, many, many pairs of entangled electrons, say in a singlet state, and I send one to Alice and one to Bob. And they collect them in these boxes labeled so they know which goes with which, right? Which of Alice's electrons was paired with which of Bob's electrons. Let's just imagine that we have, we have created a million of these. So Bob and Alice now have in their control, in their labs, an actual collection of a million electrons. Good. Now we assume that those electrons have some state. Call it lambda. What is lambda? Lambda can be anything you want. I mean, this is, Bell says, lambda just stands for whatever. You know, you make up the theory and tell me what lambda is. Um, and there will be an actual statistical distribution of the lambda in those million electrons. So maybe there's some, you know, characteristic, I don't know, squishiness <laughs> that some electrons have and some electrons don't. A certain percentage of, of Alice's electrons will be squishy. A certain percentage of Bob's electrons will be squishy. Nothing to do with counterfactuals. It's just a, a statistical description of their state. Good. Now, th so there, there's this row of lambda, which comes up in this theory. And that row, which is a probability measure, is not anything about probability. It's about these statistics. What percentage of this group has any given characteristic? Good. Now, what what Bob and Alice are going to do is they're going to make selections. Each one is going to going to uh, decide for each electron in their control whether they're going to send it through a, a, a device oriented this way or a device oriented that way. So it's a binary choice they make. And when they're done, what they will have done is subdivide this big collection into four small collections exhaustively, namely. Uh, if we call them, say, measuring X spin and Y spin, the collection where both Bob and Alice have measured X, where Bob is Alice has measured X and Bob Y, Alice Y and Bob X and both Ys, right? You know, they're doing two binary choices. You're subdividing e each of, uh, of the collections will now be subdivided into four. And the, the statistical independence assumption is just that row of lambda, that is the distribution of every of these characteristics with respect to the whole thing equals, or you know, it should be a little wiggly thing, approximately equals row of each of those sub distributions, right? That is the set 
that both Bob and Alice measure in X has some distribution. The set where Alice measures X and Bob measures Y has some distribution. If they're doing this kind of 50 for fee, then each of these will have, I don't know, 250,000 members. So each of those subsets has a row. And the statistical independence assumption is just that the rows of the subsets are equal to or approximately very closely equal to the row of the whole thing. Now, that statement that I just gave you says nothing about counterfactuals. Nothing. Just doesn't say anything about it. It's, it's, it says the statistics of this big set are very close to the statistics of each of the four smaller subsets. And, and that's it. Now, why would you think that? Well, because Bob and Alice are just flipping coins. Why, why, would, why, why would the subset that gets picked out when Alice and Bob's coins come up both heads be fundamentally different than the subset picked out when one comes up heads and one tails? Or they're doing the, the, the digits of pi, or they're using a lottery machine, or they're using whatever you like to make that sorting. You can use anything. So before, Professor Palmer, you come in, Tim Maudlin, you said that this was a tangent of a sort that you don't want to get stymied by this. And there's something else that's the main point. Do you mind? The, the main point is what I just gave you. Yeah. Okay. Right. What I don't want to get, I, I think things about chaotic dynamics I and see, what see, would happen if you change the initial conditions a little bit. I don't think they, they are relevant. They are not germane to the mathematical condition of the theorem. I see. And it's, it's hard to see how they could be, because how could the theorem be about counterfactuals? Well, let's hear okay. So my, my view is that, Tim, you have described only part of what that, uh, we'll call it statistical independence, but I don't think it's a good word, because I think... You call it whatever you like. Sure. Yeah, okay. I mean, some people call it lambda independence, which I sort of prefer. Um, I just want to, sorry, before I get into that, I just want to um, just make the point that there is nothing illogical uh, or uh, wrong or any other word you want to use to posit a dynamical system where the states are evolving on the attractor. Well, I mean, what you have described, say, with a logistic map or it'd be Lorenz's model, is what people do in practice, which is they start from any old point in state space and run the thing, you know, for as long as they can. And it, as you say, you get closer and closer to the attractor. But mathematically, you can just say my dynamical system is uh, is 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 determined by those differential equations, but where points are on the attractor, are on the invariant set. I use the word invariant set, by the way, because once you're on the invariant set, you're always on it, and you always have been on it. So yeah, it's just, it's a, it's a perfectly, um, you know, it's a perfectly sure. sound dynamical system. And I'm saying that dynamical system uh, is pertinent to what we're discussing. And this would be a good point to actually bring up the example that Bell himself raised in that paper, because I think this makes it quite clear why counterfactuals are important and why Tim is actually focusing on only part of that uh, of that assumption of the row of lambda and 
yeah, row of lambda given the measurement settings is independent of the measurement settings. So the example is we could, I mean, we Tim probably referred it to it in the last interview, but it's worth going back over it. Bell imagines, and he, and he partly did this to to sort of keep humans out of the picture and free will and all of that stuff. He said, imagine that Alice and Bob's measurement settings um, are determined by a, a pseudo-random number generator. So we're taking the human out of it altogether. And these particular, so the pseudo-random number generator will set, will output a zero or a one, and that will determine the, the, set, the setting. Um, and the input is some number that you give it, and and Bell makes the statement that the that output of zero or one is sensitive to the millionth digit of the input uh, number. And it could be pi if you like, or or anything else, but the millionth digit uh, is 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 a crucial piece of information in determining whether it's a zero or a one. I mean, maybe the billionth digit is not important, but the millionth is. Oh, can, can I just stop you here? I, I don't I don't think that. The the example, as you say, you want a, a random sequence, statistically random sequence of zeros and ones. The idea is you okay, take pi, start at the millionth digit, and then put a zero or one depending on whether it's odd or even, and then go to the millionth and first, then go to the millionth and second, then go to the millionth and third, so that uh, uh, the millionth, the parity of the millionth digit, completely determines one of the entries. Right, right, and, uh, and and then has nothing to do essentially with with the ones that came before or after. So of course right, the billionth right. one will come up eventually. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, but we're we're focusing on one particular run of the experiment, and the, you know, the claim is that the output zero or one is dependent on the millionth digit. Mm -hmm. Now, the crucial the crucial um, statement that Bell makes is that fixing, it says A or A prime, this is the, okay. this is zero or one, this is the output, you know, that determines the measurement setting. Um, fixing A or A prime indeed fixes something about the input, i.e. whether the millionth digit is odd or even. Now, this is the, this is the crucial statement, but this peculiar piece of information is unlikely to be the vital piece for any distinctively different purpose. Mm -hmm. i.e. it is otherwise rather useless. Mm -hmm. So the point is this, that we've got, you know, we're doing this experiment in a world where, you know, the moons, are, to use the example again, the moons are going around Jupiter and various other things are happening. Uh, you know, people are going for a walk in the park and stuff, you know, is happening. His, his, his point, which is a kind of, you know, it's a reasonable point. I'm not saying it's not reasonable, but I'm claiming that in the context of quantum mechanics, it is questionable. But his point is that all these other things, the moons of Jupiter, the people going for a walk in the park, the value of the millionth digits irrelevant. They just carry mm -hmm. on their lives. And of course, that's a that's a perfectly that's the sort of thing that you would expect to be true if the world was governed, say, by Newtonian physics, because, or indeed by most simple dynamical systems, because you can uh, take an initial condition where 
you know, somebody's about to go into the park where the moon is about to take in a particular phase of, of the orbit. Keep all that stuff fixed and vary the millionth digit. And that's a perfectly reasonable perturbed initial condition, and you can carry on solving your Newtonian equations with that slightly different initial condition. So that is a kind of scientific statement, if you like, or a scientific justification for uh, Bell's, uh, what he calls his reasonable assumption, that the millionth digit is, is unlikely to be the, by the way, note the word unlikely, not definitely not, unlikely to be the vital piece of uh, uh, for any distinctively different purpose. So already right. there's kind of an implicit um, re reference to the fact that this millionth digit is a free variable in the sense it can be twiddled, it can change, you can keep everything else fixed, you can just twiddle that thing and the world will will continue. But I want to come back to my example. I'm not, where where do you see yeah. twiddling in this? I mean, he says it's unlikely to be. I mean, it, I have it in front of me as well. Yeah, uh, unlikely, it's unlikely to be the, the vital piece, piece of, for yeah. any distinctively different purpose, i.e., otherwise rather useless. Right. I take it what he means there is that it, it, it that con conditioning on that fact, not asking what would have been the case if it had been different, but just conditioning on that gives you no information, no useful information about anything else. It'll tell you a very important thing in, in the physical world, namely, did Alice pick X or Y in that run? It'll absolutely tell you that important physical fact, but it won't. It, it, it just won't give you any information. It's, it doesn't really have to do with determinism. Sure. I mean, it nobody... won't change the likelihood that, that Jupiter's moons are in any particular phase. It won't change the likelihood that people are walking in the park. It won't change the likelihood in, in that uh, uh, or you know have any effect on, on on anything else in terms of the statistics. But this that, is the that, but Tim, this is the whole point I'm trying to make. I can and I do um claim to have a mathematical model where and and it's just a, a generalization of the example that I discussed with Lorenz's attractor, where you can't change the millionth digit of one of the variables and keep the others fixed. But he doesn't say you doesn't, can do it that. It doesn't, it doesn't, uh, it, it leads you to this, an This passage doesn't say you can do that. That's what it says. It's, it says it's not a, a useful piece of information for any distinctive other Distinctively purpose. different purpose. In other words, right. if you change that information... No, no, it you keep bearing. saying in other That's words... A, no, I'm trying you, to... You keep saying it. in other words, but he doesn't talk about changing it. He just says it's not useful information for any other purpose. The whole, Tim, the whole paper is about free variables, and a free variable is something that you can change in your theory. That's the whole no. basis of the paper. No. Free. What does free mean? If it doesn't mean you it, can't change if, it, then it has no meaning. Can you tell us what's meant by or what you interpret as being meant by effectively free for the purposes at hand, at least in terms of subdivisions? Effectively free for the purpose at hand means precisely that making choices, subdividing your ensemble on the basis of those things will give okay. you sub sub ensembles that are statistically similar. Let me just reread the paragraph. The row, row of lambda equals row of lambda conditioned on A and B. There's nothing right. about counterfactuals in that claim. Tim, it let just, me just reread. This is a bit. Oh, just a moment. Just a moment. Please reread. Yes. 
yeah. we're, we're kind of, uh, I, I don't want to sort of like say I'm reading from the Bible here, but what Bell says is when in that previous uh, quote, we cannot repeat an, we cannot repeat an experiment changing, note the word changing, just one variable, the hands of the clock will have moved and the moons of Jupiter. Physical theories are more amenable in this respect. We can calculate the consequence of changing, changing free variables in a theory, be they only initial conditions. So he is talking about, is it reasonable to, to assume that if I changed the parity of that millionth digit, the rest of the world would just carry on functioning as if nothing had happened. And I'm claiming I have a perfectly mathematically rigorous, you know, theory. I don't know whether it's correct or not, but it's a it's a candidate theory where that assumption is false. That okay. assumption is incorrect. But and again, that, we're just yeah, we're at cross purposes here. The you you can we could go into fine analysis of the pros, but at the end of the day, it's a mathematical theorem. Right. It follows from certain mathematical assumptions. And right. the relevant mathematical assumption is what I said, that no. rho of lambda equals rho of lambda conditioned on any, any collection of the settings that you like, right? Rho of lambda equals rho of lambda conditioned on Alice and Bob both choosing X or Alice choosing X and Bob choosing Y. That is the mathematical condition that's used to derive the inequality. And that okay. condition says nothing about counterfactuals. Okay. I agree with your mathematical statement if the, of the condition. I disagree with your interpretation of it. And I'll just give you how I see my how I see the violation of statistical independence applying to that chaos model that I described. Rho, we have some lambda, we have some fact of the matter where Alice and Bob measure uh, the spin of particles with their measurement settings oriented in a certain way. So by construction, that, that occurred, we can assign it a probability of one, we can normalize it by some factor if you want to, but essentially that occurred in reality, that's a probability of one. My claim would be that therefore that the real world, this is a manifestation of the real world evolving on the, uh, on the attractor. Now, what I want to, in testing the statistical independence assumption, I want to ask the question, what is that probability? Is it one or is it zero? So this is a very deterministic approach to probability. When I keep lambda fixed, but I change, let's say, either Alice or Bob's measurement setting from a B to a B prime or something like that, and I would claim that this model can, under certain circumstances, return the value zero for probability. In other words, when you change, and Bell's paper is about changing things, when you change Bob's setting from B to B prime, let's say keep Alice's fixed at A and keep lambda fixed, then when that state, if that state gets perturbed off this attractor, the probability goes from one to zero. And your measurement, uh, your, your lambda independence or your statistical independence is violated. 
So it's a counterfactual world where you varied B to B prime and your theory says that's that's an undefined state. So I, I violated so-called statistical independence. I violated that mathematical condition. But it's got nothing to do with statistics. It's got nothing to do with your million particles. It's one particular pair of particles. So, so yeah, I mean, look, I, we don't agree about what the mathematically the theorem's about. That That's just that simple word. I mean, it's not, you can't test Bell's inequality with a single pair. It makes, it, it, it's only an inequality that can be tested statistically. You have to do experiments on many, 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 many pairs. And the condition I, I is, that. is that the sub-ensemble that are subjected to this test condition and the sub-ensemble that's, sub, that's uh, subjected to a different test condition and so on, that those sub-ensembles are all statistically similar to one another. And uh, that that's just not a claim about what would have happened had you made a different... I mean, let me go to the Brat example just to make sure everybody listening is following this, right? So I, I know you think this is a bad analogy, but let me at least... No, I don't know, think it's a bad out. analogy. I, okay. What I'm, well, what I'm well, saying well, is well, it, it, only, uh, it only tests part of the statistical independence assumption. But sorry, I don't want to well, interrupt. Okay, so but this is for the audience, right? So for the audience, I mean... You're interested in a question like, uh, you know, does smoking cause cancer? We all know that correlation is not causation. That is, you can have correlations between things where there's no direct causal connection between them, right? So, yes, uh, smoking is correlated with getting cancer, but having ashtrays in your house is also correlated with getting cancer, um, but not because the ashtrays are dangerous, right? Because that's due to a common cause. Uh, and and the way you try and tease out the causal connections, the, the the gold standard experimentally is to do a randomized controlled trial where you take a set of test subjects and this is essentially statistical. You need many, many test subjects. You know, I need a thousand, a million, you know, 10,000 rats. And you then randomly sort them, as we say, into the experimental and control group. You treat the two groups the same, except with respect to the condition you're worried about, like subjecting them to smoke. And then you see whether you get more cancer in one group rather than the other. Now, why do you, why do, you do that? Well, you say, I, I, I don't know what causes cancer. I mean, maybe cancer can be caused by genetic defects, cancer being caused by whatever. Maybe there's stuff I have no idea. This is not about a theory. I don't even know what causes cancer. Suppose there's some unknown X factor that will make a rat more likely to have cancer. And suppose 8% of the rats have it. Um, the assumption is, well, but because I randomly sorted them into two groups, if 8% of the big group has it, then about 8% of each of the subgroups will have it. Why? Because my sorting was random, because my sorting was something like I sorted them on the, on the parity of the digits of pi, right? I mean, how, how, why would sorting on the parity of the digits of pi tend to push the ones with X factor this way rather than that way? Um, that's the logic of random controlled experiments, that the randomness, and this is where the freedom comes in, or effectively free for the purposes at hand, the physical randomizing, I mean, Bell talks about physical randomizing devices like auto balls that are bouncing around. What are they for? They're for producing random sequences. And then you use those random sequences to sort the things. 
And as a result, you're highly confident that the groups that they get sorted into are statistically like each other, in, even in respects you have know nothing about, even in respects you have no theory about, even with respect to this X factor that we don't have a clue about. Still, whatever percentage have the X factor in the control group will have the X factor in the, in the experimental group. So it's a very important assumption for experimental science on statistics. And as I said, mathematically, that is the mathematical assumption of the theory. Now, I mean, Tim keeps saying that's only part of the assumption, but I, I kind of don't understand because it, it's a mathematical claim. And it says this row is equal to the row conditioned on the choices that are made. That's just what it is. To say there's more to it, mathematically, there's no more to it. Well, is it okay? Um, there is Tim, and um, I mean your your example certainly violates um, statistical independence. And you know, if that if that was the way, if there was some conspiracy like that that was needed to um, to somehow, you know. Uh, understand Bell serum. I, I, I be with you. This is this is this is crazy. Okay. I mean, nobody would would postulate that. But my claim is that you don't you can't go in the other direction. That violating statistical violating the statistical independence condition, what we call statistical independence, does not imply that the statistics of Bell experiments are somehow skewed in a conspiratorial way and i tried to give this example i mean it, and it's it's very close to the example that bell talks about in that paper this is i mean why we're having this conversation is because my reading of that paper was just so completely different to yours uh, this is why i felt i've got to come on and say i don't agree that uh because Bell never talks about in that paper, he doesn't talk about statistics of uh, of anything. He's talking about one particular run of the experiment where the measurement setting has been determined by the millionth digit, and the claim is that that millionth digit is unlikely to be the vital piece for any distinctively different purpose. And I would say, in the light of all the previous discussion in the paper about the fact. That the whole theorem is about whether certain variables can be changed, you know, is permitted to change variables. What he's basically saying is it seems reasonable that we could change that millionth digit without affecting anything else in the world. And I'm claiming that there are there's, you know, based on geometric theories of chaos, there are models where that idea is wrong. And the way that impacts on the statistical independence assumption is just something which has probability one when you're on the attractor suddenly goes to probability of zero when you're off the attractor. So it's nothing to do with the statistics of many, many, many particles. It's about one particular, you know, you take one at a time particle. And that's, of course, you know, that is that is a crucial, um, if you go through the, the proof of of Bell's theorem, you know, you have you have your some deterministic function which outputs spin given a lambda and a measurement setting. 
you you have all the different possible measurement settings, zero, one, so on, and then you integrate over lambda. And uh, if your if your theory says actually no, this this uh, this variation that you've done of the measurement setting, keep, keeping lambda fixed, this hypothetical measurement setting that you didn't actually do but you might have done, uh, that violates the conditions of your theory. Then you can't derive Bell's inequality, and you can't derive it because you violated this. Uh, you violated statistical independence, but nothing to do with statistics. This is why statistical independence is not a good phrase, in my view. Well, uh, okay, so I, I think, you know, I'm not sure if we're going to, I mean, I'll just cite a passage, because, as I said, the, the theorem, the theorem is a, a mathematical theorem. So if you want to say there's such and such an assumption made, you have to point to the where that shows up in the mathematics. Now, Bell, on the first page of free variables and local causality, gives the assumption, uh, which is he has this V, which is, a, a I would say, a, a statistical claim about distribution of hidden variables conditioned on, and then A, B, C, A prime, B, C prime, that uh, the, the, the V conditioned on all these different things is the same, okay? And what does he say about it? He says, for me, this means that the values of such variables, that is the settings of the instruments, uh, this is explaining the phrase, it has been assumed that the settings of instruments are in some sense free variables. So let's see if it has anything to do with counterfactuals, okay? For me, this means that the values of such variables have implications only for their future light cones. They are in no sense a record of and do not give information about what has gone before. Now, I mean, let's just pause for a second. If you're making these settings on the on the parities of the digits of pi, starting with the millionth digit, that obviously is not a record of, nor does it give any information about anything that's gone before. Because it's fixed by pi, it's not. You know, it's not, it, that that's a thing that can't be changed independently of of the hi physical history of the universe, right? Whether Alice set her device this way or that way, if it depends on whether the millionth digit of pi is ob even or odd, that obviously gives no information about anything that came before, right? It can't. Um, in particular, they have no implications for the hidden variables V and the overlap of the back light cones, and then he gives this condition. Now, it, it's I, I have to certainly say, it is not true that this theorem mathematically assumes that the function from lambda and the settings to the outcome is deterministic. It doesn't. And, and the CHSH version of it explicitly doesn't. In the particular case of singlet, uh, 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 electrons, where you have perfect correlations, perfect correlations. So if I check the z-spin in the same direction, they're always anti-correlated. Anti then Bell says, well, the only thing that could get that right in a local theory would be a deterministic theory, because if it was indeterministic in a local theory, then of course, you know, on this side, it could come out either way. And in a local theory, that can't have any influence on the other side. So there's no way it could guarantee these perfect correlations. But the inequality doesn't require perfect correlations. The inequality, you know, the CHSH version assumes no perfect correlations. There are still statistical restrictions on local theories. So um, 
the talk about determinism just that that's that it and, and this is a bit dangerous because many people thought that Bell assumed determinism and then they thought well I can get out of Bell's theorem just by saying the world's not deterministic and that's not, if it was that simple it would be no big deal it's just not true well uh, I mean this is a this is tangential I mean I'm not uh, I'm assuming for simplicity determinism that the future is is entirely there's nothing indeterministic about the model you know i i mentioned lorenz's equations they are 100% deterministic if you given an initial state you can determine the future state by the equations or the equations determine the future state so i i don't want to you know just bringing in concepts of indeterminism here seems to just muddy the waters because we're not talking about indeterminism i don't think what i'm talking about is the notion that free that variables that you might think are free and i you know come back to that millionth digit the assumption is that it's a free variable in the sense that it has no bearing on anything else in the world can be questioned and when that and it can be false in the sense that changing that millionth digit can produce a state of the world which is just inconsistent with your deterministic laws of physics and the the fractal attractor example I think illustrates that perfectly. Change the millionth digit of one of the three Lorentz variables, keep the other two fixed, you're moving off the attractor. Um, and that is a violation of statistical independence because you've taken a row equals one situation on the attractor to a row equals zero situation off the attractor. So I don't know. Um, <laughs> I mean, I think we at least see what the disagreement is here, right? For me, these rows are 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 statistical information about essentially statistical information about collectives. You have to do experiments on collectives to test this theory, uh, and they're about the. I mean, there the are distributions of 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 sub sub ensembles within a large ensemble. To me, that's just what it says. Now, Tim thinks it says something else. I'm I'm not sure how we can. I mean, it seems to me we're just repeating these two sides at this point. I don't think we're making any contact. And I'm not sure, you know, how we could usefully go on. I can say, as I've said before, I don't see how you look at the mathematical condition and say, gee, here's a claim about counterfactuals or what would happen if that's implicit in the mathematical condition. I, I would just like to see it pointed out. Well, because the mathematical condition is that this row equals that row equals that row equals that row. Right, but if if row, if you in this model that I have, if you have uh, the real world, the real world happens once. A particular hidden variable, a particular run of the experiment has a particular hidden variable. Alice and Bob measure with a particular set of settings. So if you've got a good theory, it better describe that situation. So it better it better assign a probability that's non-zero to rho of lambda given what actually what Alice and Bob actually measured, because that's a, just a fact of the world, right? So that rho is non-zero. Probability of rho of lambda. I don't know what that means. The what measurement. Mean a probability of rho of lambda. No, sorry. The, the rho of lambda given. Let's say. Let's say Alice measured in the zero direction and Bob measured in the zero direction for a particular mm -hmm. lambda. Then rho of lambda given zero zero, given the zero zero setting, 
better be non-zero if you've got a if you've got a, a a theory of physics which describes what happens in the real world then it better give a row that's non-zero so that row of lambda given zero zero yeah I, I i just yeah we're just at a point of incomprehensive you know mutual incomprehensibility well, if it i occurred, don't even know what if it occurred, uh, again, it, since I think of these rows as describing statistical, actual statistical distributions, actual statistical distributions, right? But the pro- let's on, say on a, on a single uh, run, there's no distribution. I mean, there's a right. trivial distribution. So the probability is one. But, if you have a, yeah, but, that, but have that's a million, why you don't care about that. That's why you have to if, look at large. No, okay, ensembles. look. I'm, if take take a million runs, the 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 for a particular. Uh, and let's say the distribution is is uniform on those million lambdas, then the, over that distribution, the probability is like one over a million, right? Because you did a million runs. You mean it's a probability of one over a million? I, no, I'm not. No, I'm not understood. I, I, I'm sorry. I'm just not understood. So I, in the example of the rats, if, I said there's this X factor. Eight percent of the total population of the rats have it. So probably about eight percent. Of the subpopulations do now. If your subpopulations are only one rat, then of course it can't be eight percent. That doesn't make any sense. It, you know, your 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 chosen subpopulations have to be pretty big. So when you say go down to a single case, I mean the way I'm understanding this, the rows make no sense. Yes, well, I'm just saying if you go down, essentially this... claims about statist- actual statistical distribution. Professor Palmer, can you frame this in terms of ensembles? Well, I, if you like, that's what I was trying to do. You can imagine a, a uniform distribution of of on on your uh, ensemble of lambdas, and then for any particular, let's say you have a million, then the then the row for a particular lambda uh, and a particular pair of measurement settings zero zero will be one over a million. That will be a kind of a normalized probability on your ensemble. The point is, it's non-zero. I don't care whether it's one over a million or one over one or one over 10 or any number you like, as long as that's not zero. What I'm saying is, if you have a theory which has certain conditions, mathematically defined conditions, like being on your attractor, and I could name other types of theories, where you take a particular lambda Okay, whether in the real world the zero zero measurement was made, and you say, what is the value of that row for that lambda, keeping that lambda fixed, when I replace zero zero by say zero one? What do you mean by then keeping lambda answer, fixed? Sorry, keep uh, lambda. So what you mean by lambda? I mean, if, yeah, if I mean, lambda is fixed, then the you know the relevant row is a point distribution. I've got a million. Sorry, I'm getting confused. Now. I've got a million values of lambda. I'm just going to put a uniform distrib- uniform probability distribution on them. So each point has a in, of the of the real world runs. Each prob- each row is one over a million. Maybe it would be easier if you use just four values of lambda than a million. Um, suppose there. Suppose, oh, okay, so it's one the, over four. The, so you're okay. You're, suppose suppose when, whenever they produce these pairs of 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 electrons in the singlet state, which according to quantum mechanics, standard quantum mechanics, every pair is physically absolutely identical to every other pair. So there's no you know every 
the, the distribution is 100% singlet state, right? That's that's what Rho is, right? That's what it says that no, 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 it, it, is yeah, a, yeah, yeah. But there's a probability say, no, 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 on lambda. Some of these pairs are different than others. We're unaware the of lambdas, it, and they're four the different. Be, the lambdas will be different on each. Okay, three. so but you, you mean they'll be unique to every single? The, well, let's the, make them you unique. You can't say yeah. anything general at all. That no two pairs, no I, two pairs of 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 electrons have any physical similarity to any other pair? Is that what you're suggesting? I'm saying that there's no reason that they should not have distinct lambdas. I mean, you and I um, share lots of similarities. We have two eyes and a nose and all the rest of it, but our DNA right. is 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 different, is unique. Each of us has unique DNA. So I don't see what what what's the big deal about that. Each uh, electron pair has a different lambda. Why not? It's no big deal. About well, it, it's a, it, it would be awfully odd if that were true, that you, there would be any reliable statistical predictions that could come out of such a theory. I don't see why, why it should be. I mean, you just draw lambdas from a, from a distribution such that each one is unique. I mean, is that, is that, but they're all going to behave differently. I mean, I don't, I don't understand how you would, I mean, the reason why we can say a certain, pretty reliably, a certain percentage of human beings have type O blood is because actually their DNA is exactly similar in the respect. But it's not. Right? I mean, each of our, it's similar. In terms of what determines their blood type. Right. But it's, but each, each of our DNA. All the people who have type O blood have the same genes for type O Each of our DNA is unique. Yeah. So sorry, Professor Palmer, yeah. please. So what I want to do is take one of these lambdas and change what actually happened, zero, zero, to something that might have happened but didn't happen, say zero, one. And I'm, I'm going to ask my theory, what, what row am I going to, what row does my theory predict for that counterfactual measurement setting, zero, one? And what I'm saying is there are situations where that returns the identical value of zero. So that's a violation of statistical independence, which has got nothing whatsoever to do with statistics of anything. It's just, uh, it's just, it's just a, a statement that one, that with a measurement setting that occurred in reality, if I vary the measurement setting to something that, let's say, might have happened but didn't happen, uh, my theory says that that counterfactual violates certain conditions in the theory and therefore returns a row that's identically zero so we you know we can normalize the rows of the actual experiment it can be one over four or one over a million doesn't really matter but it's not zero but the theory returns a value of zero and what i'm saying is that i think that is the type of thing that was at the back of bell's mind you know when he wrote that paper because he wasn't talking about statistical um similarities between sub ensembles he was asking this question, does the millionth digit matter for any distinctly, distinctively different purpose? That was the key point of his paper. Okay, how do you all feel progress can be made if there's such large interpretive differences at the bedrock? Right. Uh, okay, so I, I, again, I think, we're, I think we've reached the point. I, I predicted at the beginning, I said, I think counterfactuals have nothing to do with this. It's a red herring. I didn't want to get too much into counterfactuals because I understand 
what the condition is as a purely statistical condition about the actual statistics of actual ensembles and actual sub-ensembles that are defined by the choice of measurement setting. Uh, that, that, that statement just doesn't have to do with what would have happened. Now, when Bell says this particular piece of information is otherwise rather useless, what he uh, the way I read that is he says, well, that's a really important inf piece of information if you want to know what Alice chose, right? Um, that'll tell you what Alice chose. Why? Because she was choosing on the basis of the output of this algorithm, and that particular output determined on the nth run whether she chose this way or that way. But he says for any other distinctive purpose, it's a rather useless piece of information. Now, uh, I don't hear any counterfactuals in that. I don't hear any claims about I don't even know how to evaluate the claim. What would the world have been like if the millionth digit of pi had a different parity than it actually has, right? That's a counter mathematical. I don't even know how to make sense of it. I don't think it has to do with what Bell has in mind when he says this information is not useful for any other purpose. But then we're why... just now we were just now going back and forth over the same territory. Right. And I, I just don't think we're making any progress here. Okay. So I, I mean, I guess I feel like I've stated. Okay. What I think, I think people can go look at the theorem, they can look at right. the mathematics, they can look at the mathematical condition and see what they see in it. Right. I, I just going to finish. I mean, we can finish, but let me just reread, you know, what Bell wrote. He wrote, we can calculate the consequences of changing free elements of a theory, be they only initial conditions, and so can explore the causal structure of the theory. I insist that B, his Beable's paper, is primarily an analysis of certain kinds of physical theory. Now, why would he have written that if the central point wasn't about whether your physical theory uh, had had free elements that could be changed? I mean, he uses the word change. Uh, it's clearly your ability to change variables in your putative physical theory is central to Bell's theorem. And that's what he says. And um, and I'm just coming up with a model where what might seem reasonable actually turns out to be wrong. And I think that model can be a useful way of understanding Bell's, the violation of Bell's inequality without having to resort to non-locality, which is very anti-relativistic and so difficult, therefore, to, to synthesize with GR. Anyway, that's my point. Do you think that this could be resolved if Tim Maudlin knew more about your invariant set theory? Or do you think that doesn't matter because of well, I hope one at another day, level? I hope one day, Tim, you'll invite me to Croatia. It's, it sounds like a fantastic institute. I'd love to spend a few days with you chatting over a glass of wine and, you know. It's wonderful wine here. I'm it's sure it's great phenomenal. wine. Great local wine. I'm sure it's absolutely wonderful. So, um, yeah, who knows? All right. Well, thank you all. And again, if you have any thoughts afterward and you're like, you know what? I think that we could make some ground, some headway. I, actually, can I, can I yes. just make a, a tangent? I'm not, I promise I'm not going to go back to the, to, to what we've just been fighting up. Sure. But there is a kind of conceptual point I would like to make. Um, that is Tim ended up saying, look, this non-locality really doesn't, seem to be consistent with relativity and yeah that's right i mean that's why einstein hated standard quantum mechanics the spooky action at a distance he hated it from the beginning he hated wave collapse because it seemed to be instantaneous <laughs> absolutely um but i do think it's worth pointing out 
that special relativity was developed by reflecting on classical Maxwellian electrodynamics, which is a local theory and could not violate Bell's inequality. And general relativity was developed by taking that and then trying to make it give back to good approximation Newtonian gravitational phenomena. And that's also a local theory and could not violate Bell's inequality. Well, if we let the if we let the gravity go at the speed of light. Uh, so GR and SR were perfectly good reactions to what Einstein had before him. But what he had before him were theories that could not violate Bell's inequality. That is, that he had theories that could perfectly well be local. Um, and 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 it seems to me that that to the question is how do you react when you find out there is this thing Bell's inequality and it is in fact violated? I mean that would have shocked Einstein to his core. But it does seem to me a reasonable thing is to reassess and say, well, what if I could give you a theory um, that isn't relativity, but does give relativity to good approximation or relative, relativistic structures? Let me put it this way. Relativistic structures are in it or emerge from it either to very good approximation or even precisely. Um, but they have more than general relativity. They have more structure, say. Say they have a preferred foliation. Um, is it unreasonable? Consider you say, well, why do you want this preferred foliation? The answer is, well, if you give me that, I can easily write down dynamics that will violate Bell's inequality. And I don't have to violate statistical independence or anything else. And this is this can be done. It's kind of easy to do. Um, it just seems to me that that the goal of maintaining relativity as the last word in space-time structure, I don't understand because those theories were developed in ignorance of violations of Bell's inequality. And they were developed in a setting where there was no pressure to be able to violate Bell's inequality at space-like separation because nobody knew you could. Um, so I, I, I think physicists do have this deep attachment to relativity. It's a beautiful theory. GR is a beautiful theory. Unlike quantum mechanics, it's an understandable theory, right? The more you work with it, the better you understand it. Um, you know, you work out all these models and you see what's going on. I mean, I, I, I have a deep aesthetic appreciation for it, but it just seems like trying to work violations of Bell's inequality into it, just th there's a really bad fit there. And one reasonable reaction to that is say, okay, what, what, Maybe I can adjust the space-time structure to make it more amenable. And there are easy ways to do it. And I'm a little puzzled why people are resistant to it. That's what I'm working on, right? My my discrete space-time has a preferred foliation in it. And I'm glad it does. Good. I need it. I'm going to use it. Okay. I, I, I don't want to... Uh, I, I don't want to... You know, I mean, good good on you and good good luck with your theory. But I just want to respond to that um your the general point um i mean maxwell's equations are, are basically linear equations so they wouldn't they wouldn't exhibit any of the sorts of things that i've been talking about so you know you can run you can run uh maxwell's equations uh from a slightly perturbed initial condition and you'll get a another perfectly good solution of maxwell's equations so there's no way uh maxwell's equations would ever 
violate this notion of uh, counterfactual definiteness or what I would call violate statistical independence. But GR is actually a different kettle of fish uh, because it is nonlinear. And as I think I mentioned earlier, you can, uh, Misner did this years ago, concoct cosmologies which are chaotic. And you can envisage a situation where you have a, cos a cosmological solution of of GR, which exhibits the, a kind of fractal invariant set structure. So then the, the question of, of uh, counterfactual definiteness really is relevant in this scenario because you can perturb off the invariant set of something like the Mixmaster universe and, uh, 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 and violate this what I would call the statistic. This is something we didn't agree on, but I would say that could then well violate statistical independence. So actually, you know, there is the possibility of GR having exactly the properties that you want in a in a cosmological sense. By the way, this this for me, I mean, I mean if you we're going slightly beyond what we're discussing, but this for me. Um, brings into focus what I think is the real message behind Bell's theorem, and I think it's a really profound one. Um, and and it's not to do with non-locality, but it's to do with the kind of holistic structure in the laws of physics that we don't have at the moment. For example, in the standard model, because if this idea about you know fractal attractors and stuff, geometry of these attractors is right, these are very holistic structures. These are not things that you'll see by just looking at the Planck scale. You'll only see them by looking at the the structure of the universe as a whole. So this may be telling us that the whole kind of direction that physics is trying, contemporary theoretical physics is trying to go by just kind of going down to smaller and smaller scales, hopefully to the Planck scale. So people say this is probably not going to solve our quantum gravity problems. That's my view, and that's what that for me is the big message behind behind Bell's theorem. So, um, yeah, all to play for. Thank you all for being so generous with your time. The book that Tim Palmer has written, it's a great popular science book on the subjects that we've just spoken about, is called The Primacy of Doubt. The links to that will be in the description. The links to the John Bell Institute, especially the GoFundMe, because there isn't a place to go. Well, there's a place we don't own it. <laughs> okay, there's a place they would like we, to own there, it. There, there's a place and we built stuff here, but we don't own it. And so if we if we can't buy it, we're going to lose everything we've put into it. That link will be in the description as well as maybe written on screen right now. Go check out those links and write your comments and see where do you agree? What do you disagree about? They will all read it and maybe there will be a part two about this and maybe even that wine ceremony over the course of a couple of days. Maybe I'll film some of that and, and we'll have some fun. Okay. All right. Again, thank you. Take care. Thanks for having us. Thank you very much. Thank you. The podcast is now concluded. Thank you for watching. If you haven't subscribed or clicked that like button, now would be a great time to do so as each subscribe and like helps you to push this content to more people. You should also know that there's a remarkably active Discord and subreddit for Theories of Everything where people explicate toes, disagree respectfully about theories, and build as a community our own toes. Links to both are in the description. 
Also, I recently found out that external links count plenty toward the algorithm, which means that when you share on Twitter, on Facebook, on Reddit, etc., it shows YouTube that people are talking about this outside of YouTube, which in turn greatly aids the distribution on YouTube as well. Last but not least, you should know that this podcast is on iTunes, it's on Spotify, it's on every one of the audio platforms. Just type in theories of everything and you'll find it. Often I gain from re-watching lectures and podcasts, and I read that in the comments, hey, Toll listeners also gain from replaying. So how about instead re-listening on those platforms? iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, whichever podcast catcher you use. If you'd like to support more conversations like this, then do consider visiting patreon.com slash Kurt and donating with whatever you like. Again, it's support from the sponsors and you that allow me to work on Toe full-time. You get early access to ad-free audio episodes there as well. For instance, this episode was released a few days earlier. Every dollar helps far more than you think. Either way, your viewership is generosity enough.